listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured, episode 214. We have a new president, and that's not really what we're going to talk about this episode. We are sure that you have had enough inauguration hot takes, so we're going to instead take a deep dive into California's Proposition 22, what it means for workers, why and how it might spread, and how to fight it. But first, the news. Working conditions still suck for the majority of people who have to go to work in person during a pandemic. That much I hope we can all agree on. But what sucks more than working in a pandemic is being arrested in a pandemic. In this case, being arrested for picketing while on strike for a much-needed raise. I am talking about the workers at Hunts Point Terminal Produce Market in the Bronx, where many of the fruits and veggies you buy at the grocery store every day in New York City come from. Alex Press at Jacobin explains, quote, At 12.01 a.m. on Sunday, January 17th, some 1,400 employees at the Hunts Point Produce Market went on strike. From warehouse workers to truck drivers, the strike encompasses every member of the union. The workers, members of Teamsters Local 202, decided to strike after contract negotiations broke down over a wage dispute. The workers want a dollar an hour raise, plus a 60 cent hourly raise to fund health care benefits, while Hunts Point is only offering 32 cents. End quote. The union had noted employers in the market who collectively bill billions of dollars in annual sales received more than $15 million in forgivable PPP loans during the pandemic. And during the picket on Monday night, those strikers were blocking scab truckers from getting to produce, and several of the picketers were arrested. The union shared video on Twitter of the workers raising their hands and chanting, hands up, don't shoot, a callback to protests over the police killing of Michael Brown, among others. Local 202 President Dan Kane said in a statement, quote, It is outrageous that after being called essential heroes for months, several of our members were arrested while peacefully protesting for a raise today. These are the essential workers who went to work every day through the worst of the pandemic to feed New York. All they are asking for is a dollar an hour raise so they can feed their families, too. The fact that they were arrested on Martin Luther King Day reminds us what side of history we are on, end quote. Martin Luther King, of course, died while supporting striking workers in Memphis, Tennessee. The union also noted that some 300 to 400 workers have contracted COVID-19 and six of them have died. It's not good enough just to clap for them and say they're essential, said Kane. When they asked for a decent raise, a fair number, they should be told, yes, you can have that and thank you. The workers who were arrested have been released and the strike is ongoing as of this recording. As a parting shot to the labor movement, Trump decided to ram through a slew of 11th hour labor regulations during his last days in office, or rather we should call them deregulations. Known as midnight regulations, these rules are primarily designed to quietly finish off an administration's agenda items at the last minute, just before the incoming administration takes office. Once they're finalized, they've become official policy. While Biden could freeze and reverse these measures, completely dismantling them would require another bureaucratic process, and it would primarily gum up the works for his agenda. Trump's last-minute wish list for the Department of Labor includes a newly finalized rule to solidify the legal status of gig workers as independent contractors. That means Uber and Lyft drivers, as well as other app-based workers, will be excluded from the Fair Labor Standards Act and other labor protections. 
Such a rule will be a gift to the executives of rideshare and delivery apps, whose entire business model is based on exploiting a massive workforce that is legally exempt from basic labor standards. Another finalized rule will allow for tip pooling for back-of-the-house workers at restaurants. This will enable restaurant employers to shave off some of the tipped earnings from front-of-the-house workers, such as servers, and redistribute them to non-tip staff, like line cooks and other kitchen-based workers. The rule could enable bosses to indirectly claw back some of the earnings of the front-of-the-house staff. The administration has also moved to overhaul the H-1B visa program, which allows for the importation of professional workers into U.S. companies, in order to place more restrictions on eligibility for the labor visa, targeting those with the highest salaries and with the highest education levels. In other words, moving toward excluding all but the most elite workers rather than entry-level employees or those working in less lucrative fields. Another rule will lower wages for seasonal migrant farm workers, and yet another rule will stretch the shifts of truck drivers, enabling them to work longer hours, which labor and safety advocates argue will only make drivers less safe on the road. And just for good measure, Trump has also inked a rule to allow private employers with federal contracts to discriminate based on religion when hiring new workers. Another labor policy left behind by the Trump administration might have a very different effect. For decades, clothing companies have sought to evade responsibility for the horrific labor and environmental abuses that occur in their supply chains, effectively outsourcing the ethical burden of protecting workers and communities to the poor countries where manufacturing takes place. But things may be slowly changing in Washington, with a new regulation that seeks to block imports of products from the Xinjiang region of China, where massive forced labor violations are suspected to be widespread. Customs and Border Protection has announced that it will ban cotton and tomato-based products from Xinjiang, which is a major source of both commodities for China and the rest of the world. According to research by news outlets and various human rights groups, the Uyghur people of Xinjiang have been subjected to extreme oppression and cultural genocide for years, and forced labor of the ethnic Muslim population is part of the Chinese government's effort at stamping out what remains of their cultural autonomy. According to Worker Rights Consortium, quote, U.S. brands and retailers import more than 1.5 billion garments with Xinjiang content every year, representing more than $20 billion in retail sales. This includes Finnish garments exported from dozens of countries, including Bangladesh, Cambodia, and Vietnam, as well as China, unquote. That means all imported garments using cotton harvested from Xinjiang will effectively be blocked under the new policy from being sold in U.S. markets. The ban follows an international campaign to stop the systematic labor abuses in Xinjiang called End Uyghur Forced Labor. Of course, enforcement of human rights policies through customs and border protection can be extremely complicated and often extremely weak. I spoke to Scott Nova of the Worker Rights Consortium about why this ban is significant and what it could mean for the movement for supply chain accountability. He starts with some background on Customs and Border Protection's role in policing supply chains. CBP is the enforcement agent for the Tariff Act, which is the law that prohibits the importation to the U.S. of goods made with forced labor. And they have the administrative power when they believe products from a certain company or from a certain region are likely to be tainted with forced labor to declare an a priori ban on the importation of those products. So it is assumed under this action that any product with content from that region of the world is tainted with forced labor unless the corporation importing the goods, for example, an apparel brand or retailer, can definitively prove that there is no forced labor content. So it's an administrative action under CBP's power as the enforcement agent for the legal prohibition on the importation of forced labor goods into the United States. 
Can you discuss a little bit what the uh, what the U.S. government's record is in terms of actually using the Tariff Act to uh, to ensure that supply chains for products coming into the U.S. are free of forced labor and or other labor violations? Um, my understanding is that um, this has uh, not been a, a huge priority of of CBP in the past. Well, historically, the U.S. government's track record has been terrible because there was a huge loophole inserted into the law that made it effectively unenforceable for 75 years. And it was not until the the closing year of the Obama administration that the loophole was removed and the law became enforceable. Since that time, CBP has been working to step up enforcement, but actual effective enforcement of the law has been weak. Uh, And obviously, it needs to be a lot better because the law has enormous implications both for workers overseas uh, and for the kinds of of abuses that U.S. consumers are unwittingly being made party to when they buy products. Can you talk about which products are being targeted and, and why that is? The ban that was instituted this past week specifically applies to cotton-based and tomato-based products, which are two of the largest commodities produced uh, in the Uyghur region. China is the world's largest producer of cotton, uh, and 90% of China's cotton comes from the Uyghur region, about 20% of the apparel industry's entire global cotton supply. China is also the largest producer of tomatoes globally, and the Uyghur region produces the bulk of those tomatoes. So two very important products where there is strong evidence workers are being subjected to forced labor in the manufacture of those products. So for the garment, apparel, textile, and cotton side of things, what this ban effectively means is that any garment coming into the United States that has cotton or yarn from the Uyghur region, even if the garment is actually sewn in a factory in Bangladesh or in Vietnam or in Indonesia, is banned from entry to any U.S. port. We believe this affects roughly 1.5 billion garments that would normally be imported into the United States in the course of a year. So a massive impact on the apparel brands and retailers that have been aiding and abetting the human rights abuses and forced labor in the Uyghur region by continuing to source cotton from the region, even as those abuses have grown worse and worse over the course of the last several years. Groups like yours have been trying to uh, compel corporations to try to, you know, scrutinize their supply chains better, um, be more transparent, and also um, try to enforce um, some modicum of, you know, labor rights and standards. Um, and this is, you know, for supply chains around the world. Um, so, do you hope that this policy might um, might be a watershed in terms of pushing those types of policies and practices, or do you feel like this might be a a one-off? Well, a few points worth noting here. I mean, our organization has helped to form a global coalition called the Coalition to End Forced Labor in the Uyghur Region, which is demanding that all apparel brands and retailers commit to extricate their supply chains from the Uyghur Region at every level, from cotton to finished garments. And we are hopeful that this action but will hasten the exit of apparel brands and retailers from that region where they continue to exploit workers and abet the Chinese government's abuses. 
This is the strongest governmental enforcement action against labor rights abuses in the global apparel supply chain that's ever been undertaken. Powerful apparel brands and retailers didn't want this to happen, and the government did it anyway. The brands and retailers, despite having codes of conduct for which they proclaim that they are committed to protecting the rights of workers, in reality have constructed largely unaccountable global supply chains in which workers suffer a raft of abuses on an ongoing basis uh, in virtually every country in which apparel brands and retailers produce goods. And it is extremely rare for there to be any governmental action on the import side, on the U.S. side, in the case of, of goods being imported into the U.S., to actually hold brands and retailers accountable. So in that sense, this is a very significant and unusual step it's also important to note, though, that the reason it is possible to undertake this action is that it is illegal for a U.S. brand or retailer to import a product made with forced labor. Unfortunately, that is the only form of labor rights abuse that is prohibited legally in terms of the importation of goods by brands and retailers. In other words, it unfortunately is not illegal for a U.S. brand or retailer to import a, a garment into the United States that has been made in a factory where workers are subjected to sexual harassment overseas. It's not illegal to import a good where workers are subjected to various forms of wage theft or to violent intimidation when they try to organize a union. This is an enormous problem. If we had broader, more robust protections, if it were illegal as it should be for brands and retailers to import a product into the United States made in violation of any fundamental labor right, then this kind of enforcement action would be a prospect across a broad range of labor issues. My other question would be, why is this enforcement action being taken now around this specific issue? Is it, um, is it simply that the violations in the Xinjiang region are uh, so much worse than they are elsewhere in the world? Um, or is, a, is this sort of a, geopolitical, a geopolitically convenient uh, target for this administration? Right. Well, it's a combination of factors, no doubt. I mean, the, the Chinese government is carrying out extraordinarily brutal crimes in the Uyghur region. And there is no comparison in terms of the extent of forced labor being utilized in that region to any place else in the world. And, and that is a significant driver. There obviously are also factors related to the trade conflict between the U.S. and China, geopolitical issues. Although it's important to note the United States government is not the only government that is contemplating or taking action with respect to the forced labor crisis in the Uyghur region. We saw actions, albeit much narrower, this past week, both from the United Kingdom and Canada. So it would be a mistake to view this purely through a geopolitical lens. There's been mounting pressure on, the, uh, on CVP to enforce the law with respect to the Uyghur region because of the widespread and growing public scrutiny and media scrutiny of the crimes against humanity being carried out there. It's a combination of issues, unquestionably. The central issue going forward with respect to this ban is whether or not CVP will enforce the ban effectively. Uh, as you noted in an earlier question, CVP's track record is poor on enforcement. Yeah. I mean, there are, there, there's, there are a couple encouraging signs on enforcement. CVP reported when they announced this ban that relative to a ban a month ago that was narrower but still significant, that they've already seized 43 shipments of garments into the U.S. with content from the Uyghur region. 
And we understand they have also sent a sweeping data request to an unknown number of apparel brands and retailers that requires highly detailed level of supply chain disclosure down to the level of raw material, something that brands and retailers have never been presented with before from the U.S. government. And if CBP compels the brands and retailers to actually answer these questions honestly, that would result in brands and retailers providing vastly more information about which farms, which cotton gins, which yarn spinning mills are part of their supply chain than they've ever previously been compelled to disclose. Do we have any indication as to whether this will last through the Biden administration? We hope, of course, that the Biden administration, which certainly presents itself as as far more interested in human rights issues than the outgoing administration, will be stronger in its approach to crimes against humanity and forced labor in the Uyghur region and will, in fact, uh, take a more aggressive approach to enforcement uh, than the past administration would have. This, of course, remains to be seen, but that's the hope. That was Scott Nova of Worker Rights Consortium. Okay, okay. I sort of lied. I don't have an inauguration hot take, and I will not. But I did want to take a minute to talk about our incoming pending confirmation, of course, Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh. Or like those of us who grew up in Boston call him, Marty Walsh. Seriously, my favorite thing about Marty Walsh is how much fun it is to dredge up my long-lost Boston accent to say his name. Thanks, Marty. Walsh is going to be the first labor secretary since 1977 who was, and I believe maintains his membership, is actually a union member. That is the good news. Not that it's all bad after that, but I mean, it's kind of depressing that it's been that long, and the last unionist to run the labor department was nominated by Gerald Ford. So... This is where I say to our listeners from Boston, we want to hear your takes on Matty Walsh and what you think he might be like as a labor secretary, because it's actually been rather undercovered from our side, I think. Naturally, the big international unions and the AFL-CIO have been effusive in their praise at the start, but everyone wants access to this administration And Joe Biden has, of course, made a lot of promises to workers. And as I'm recording this, we hear that one of those is going to be kept. Joe Biden has already asked NLRB General Counsel Peter Robb to step down on his very first day in office. So from that, we can extrapolate who knows what. Anyway, there is a lot of damage to undo here, as Michelle explained. So who is Marty Walsh? The second-term mayor of Boston currently is the former head of the Laborers Union Local 223 and the Boston Metropolitan District Building Trades Council. He was not the first choice for many unions, including the UAW, CWA, and NNU. And, of course, our listeners will know that Bernie Sanders had expressed interest in the position. Others had backed Julie Sue, California's labor secretary, and, well, much more about California labor law later on in today's show, or Representative Andy Levin of Michigan, who is a former SEIU organizer. But Walsh got the pick, perhaps because he's a building trades guy. The trades, of course, were one of the union branches most likely to have a lot of Trump supporters. So perhaps Biden sees Walsh as someone with potential to reach Trump fans. Or perhaps it's just that he still thinks the working class is best represented by a white guy. As A.E. at StrikeWave noted, quote, conventionally, the answer to political polarization is appeal to the right. 
In practice, this often translates to appeal to white workers and drop divisive issues like racism, end quote. Walsh didn't always have the best relationship with unions in his own city. The Boston Teachers Union had a battle with him over the union's contract, and more recently, of course, over school reopening. Walsh told reporters, I see labor in a whole different light from this seat. More recently, city council member Michelle Wu had decided to challenge Walsh from the left before his nomination, and she, of course, continues to run. So what are the Walsh hot takes? In The Hill, John Logan, who is professor and director of labor and employment relations at San Francisco State University, argued that Walsh would be a good labor secretary, noting that he is significantly more progressive than many in the trades and that as Boston mayor, he declared racism a public health issue. More importantly, he notes, quote, Walsh's life experiences enable him to understand and empathize with the struggles of millions of ordinary Americans currently facing severe financial hardship, unemployment, and dangerous working conditions. Walsh has stood in unemployment lines, he has struggled with addiction, and he has worked in construction, an industry plagued by high rates of underemployment and workplace injuries. End quote. It is true that it matters to have someone who actually knows what it's like to work in a position usually dominated by Harvard lawyers. Not that being a lawyer isn't work. But that said, AE at StrikeWave notes that it's not been all sunshine for working people in Walsh's Boston. Quote, the hallmark of Walsh's mayoralty has been gentrification and displacement of the BIPOC communities he claims to support, that is, Black, Indigenous, people of color. Meanwhile, the housing market and construction industry have profited from a major increase in development projects in the city. A study conducted by MIT researchers and City Life Vita Urbana, a longtime well-respected local housing justice organization, found that 70% of market rate eviction filings occur in neighborhoods where a majority of residents are people of color, end quote. They continue, quote, Walsh, a supposed labor advocate and self-declared fighter for racial justice, routinely pits construction labor and BIPOC communities against each other by supporting luxury development while letting the housing crisis run unabated. Further, he refuses to touch the systematic exclusion of BIPOC Bostonians from one of the most profitable industries in the city, end quote. So, which Marty Walsh will show up to run labor? It'll be important to see how and whether important posts get staffed up and get a budget that actually allows them to do their jobs. More on that later today. We will, of course, have much more in general on this subject. As I said, get at us if you are a Bostonian who wants to talk Walsh. And you can also criticize my lapsed Boston accent. Belabored at DescentMagazine.org. In this episode, we are talking about the fallout from California's Proposition 22 and what it means for the future of gig workers. Nicole Moore of Rideshare Drivers United, a group that represents Uber and Lyft drivers across California, has experienced some of the impacts of Prop 22 firsthand. When Prop 22 won, it was a huge blow to our membership Um you know, we had like 400 volunteers involved in phoning and texting voters all over the state. We, I think we reached more than a million people. And, you know, with the message that, hey, you know, Prop 22 is going to hurt us. I'm a driver. And, you know, finding people generally very supportive of drivers and wanting to do things that would help us. So, you know, it really looked like deception to us that, you know, it won't 
it won. <laughs> and um, in fact, some of the exit polls showed that, that people had voted for it, thinking it was going to give people more benefits. That certainly has not been how it's played out for drivers. You know, people you know, are all excited about getting 30 cents a mile for reimbursement for their costs um, while in engaged time, only to find out that they just put it together with um, the hourly rate for engaged time plus 30 cents a mile. And if you've earned more than that in your daily, you know, fares and that kind of thing, they don't give you a penny. I mean, that's just the opposite of how it works in my day job. In my day job, if I have to drive to another place for a meeting, I get my regular pay plus IRS reimbursement rate, which is 58 cents. And I'm sure that's how everybody thought it was going to work. So it's been a really big blow for folks. But I think, you know, seeing how strong um, my colleagues are in rideshare, you know, people are just, no, we got to keep fighting. And people are very clear. Our employment rights, our basic labor protections are not negotiable. And we're very, very much focused on ensuring that the people who make the rules in D.C. and in California know that this is not okay. We are not getting anything out of these kinds of third category agreements. You know, we're just going to be fighting our way up to basic labor rights from this position as basically a second class workforce. We're not second class. We do the same kind of work as everybody else. We deserve the same protections under the law. And, you know, I just think in the world that we're in right now, where everybody's focused on how do we get racial justice? How do we get equity? Well, you certainly don't create a second-class workforce out of a majority people of color uh, app-based workforce. You can't do it. It's wrong. And uh, we have very high hopes that people see this and will continue to move it. Um, But we're not letting people's feet off the fire. Everybody has to come together on this. This is not a time to kiss up to technology for their innovation because this worker exploitation is not innovation and people are hurting. Is Redshirt Drivers United involved in any of the legal action? I know SCIU is filing a lawsuit. Um, are you uh, are you planning on taking taking them to court? The case that was filed in court last week is absolutely wonderful because you know, we know in our guts that this law is wrong. And to have some of the best, you know, labor lawyers in the country put together a case that says this law is against the Constitution is so exciting. And we're right now um, drafting a letter with other drivers groups to support it. And uh, they, they, we we absolutely want the court to bring this forward. Um, you know, this law is it's not just bad for drivers and delivery workers. It sets a path that, you know, could have the power to overturn everybody's labor rights, you know, a little at a time, because let's face it, all our jobs are basically able to be app deployed. And we don't, we don't think that's the direction that we need to go as a country. 
Is the issue also that as long as Prop 22 exists, it's basically preempting some of the you know proactive measures that RDU and other groups had been pushing for to actually bring drivers in alignment with labor standards? Because you know it, it is directly countering AB5. Aside from AB5, I mean, it, like it seemed like there was like a broader sort of. Um, uh, there's a broader campaign to uh, to basically just advocate for equal rights for these drivers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we had five thousand of our drivers sign up, uh, you know, file wage claims um, with the state of California, showing that they had been cheated out of uh, not millions of dollars, but one point three billion dollars over the course of uh, the last three years. And those claims are still very much active. Uh, Both the Labor Commission and the Attorney General are suing on the behalf of all drivers in California who've driven for Lyft and Uber in the last four years to recover the wages that, um, you know, were basically stolen from us when we were absolutely eligible under Dynamics and AB5 to uh, be paid uh, at least minimum wage and and all the other things that come with that, whether it's unemployment insurance, uh, you know, um, family leave, workers' compensation, all those benefits were due us. Uh, so, yeah, it's taken that away. It's taken away our ability to organize our own union and negotiate contracts with these companies collectively. That, those are huge rights that are basics in our country. So, I mean, it's our, it's definitely our hope that the that the Supreme Court of California will see what this law is doing, which is basically taking rights away from drivers and delivery workers, and we'll see it as a threat. Um, I don't think anybody knew when they voted yes for the initiative that they were actually taking people's rights to organize away, but you know, so I. I do think that um, we hope that the court will see that the law is bad. And if they don't, um, we're going to be fighting for our rights across the country. Um, In D.C., there is hope to move uh, both policies and laws that would protect app-based workers like delivery workers and drivers um, to have their full rights. Um, you know, the other thing is, I mean, we challenge Lyft and Uber to actually follow the law they wrote. Uh, we're we're not clear that they are following it. The law um, guarantees flexibility and no uh, retribution for refusing uh, jobs, which we do when we get dinged on a ride that looks like it's going to be uh, a money loser. We don't take those d- rides. Um, and uh, we often uh, get a lot of pushback from the app as a result. We need to know that the companies are not um, basically punishing people for um, having complete control over whether or not they take a job. Um, So we'll be holding the companies accountable under Prop 22 while we fight for what every other worker in California and the country has, which is basic labor rights. Yeah, it'd be pretty interesting if uh, those companies, you know, went through all this effort to get Prop 22 passed and then ended up not following the very law that they wrote. So yeah, they're so um, much to not following laws. It's it's you know, 
it wouldn't be a surprise but they built no accountability into the law itself. So we believe that it's something that the attorney general will have to follow up with um, to, you know, and the companies will have to ante up the data uh, um, in order for the state to understand if they're even following the rules. We should step back here and note that the law is written in such a way that makes it nearly impossible to overturn <laughs> using conventional mm-hmm. channels, right? I mean, it's... Um, super duper quadruple majority to can to actually amend. Yeah, yeah, I mean making changes through the legislature is near impossible cuz it asks for the 7th 8th majority to make any changes to the law. Um you know, and I I think that that is probably one of the things that the court will look at, but I think the law um you know goes after so many rights of drivers that I think that's going to put it more at risk. Uh, in front of uh, the Supreme Court of California. You noted that there might be some movement around policy in D.C. Um, Do you have any thoughts on the incoming administration? Has it signaled that addressing the rights of gig workers is going to be at all a priority for them? Yeah. So, uh, yes, um, both Biden and Harris have been very clear um, in terms of their support of AB5 and their opposition to third category uh, labor laws like uh, Prop 22. So that is very good for us um, and very good for the future of labor in our country. So um, the thing is with, with any time people go to D.C., we have to hold their feet to the fire. There's so many interests trying to go the other way. I mean, even our own governor in California took a neutral position on Prop 22, which makes absolutely no sense uh, when you're, you know, supposed to be a labor positive governor. Uh, so we know that we have to hold their feet to the fire and we will hold, you know, labor's feet to the fire. I mean, we are an independent group that just started two years ago. We're not a full-fledged labor union with, you know, um, tons of staff and and resources to make stuff happen. We're not a member of the AFL-CIO, but, you know, there are people in labor and labor needs to be, uh, make this a priority. And we're absolutely counting on labor to look at this as you know, big industry. And let's look at the investors behind the industry that are basically trying to do a complete rewrite of Taft-Hartley. And if we don't stand our ground on this, we are to blame for whatever future horror show we have in our labor market. Can we talk about how gig workers in general have been faring during the pandemic? I mean, it seems like 22 came through at a time that is particularly inopportune for workers, you know, uh, Uber drivers and Lyft drivers, and also even DoorDash folks who are on the road every day um, and getting work. They're having a pretty tough time in terms of just uh, having their most basic rights enforced. I mean, it's been really rough. I mean, for rideshare drivers, when um, the state shut down on, uh, you know, when COVID came to town, uh, our rides dr- dried up completely. 
Um, now, it was in some ways a blessing because it's extremely dangerous to be in a car with a disease with another human when a disease is running rampant and is actually taking people's lives. So, um, and we had very little help from the companies in terms of uh, you know the the kinds of PPE that were needed, the disinfectant, the barriers between the front and back seats. Um, and, you know, so, you know, 75% of our members are saying that they've paid for all of their own PPE and disinfectants and haven't gotten help from the companies on that. So, so, um, so it's been more expensive to drive. The time it takes to disinfect a, a car in between each passenger is unpaid time. So if you're getting into a clean car, you already owe that driver a tip. I mean, it's it, it, we're not paid for the work in between rides. So um, so I just, you know, so it's been very hard if people have continued to drive. Many of us have pivoted to do the delivery work, which is also really hard. Most of the people I know are running two or three apps at once, just trying to make uh, ends meet. And it's hard. Um, and in terms of, uh, you know, I, about 60% of our membership uh, chose to uh, go on unemployment for a lot of reasons. One, it's dangerous in the car. Two, got kids at home. Um, and it just wasn't worth it to drive. Um, and unemployment has been its own, you know, horrible show in uh, in terms of working with California EDD, uh, as misclassified drivers, you um, when you first get in contact with EDD, the first thing they tell you is you're not eligible because they see none of your wage history in the computer and they don't have your employer, which you identify as Lyft or Uber, as paying in. So they say you're not eligible. And then you say you're misclassified, and then uh, you demand to talk to a wage auditor within the EDD, and it takes um, sometimes uh, days, but usually weeks, um, to actually have EDD verify that you're a misclassified employee who is eligible for UI. Um, and, you know, so PUA was a lifesaver because it basically took the pressure off of uh, uh, EDD to put us into UI, um, and because uh, their system isn't working well for drivers, uh, it's just been really difficult. On the other hand, unemployment insurance is exactly the kind of uh, safety net that all workers deserve, and we're very thankful that under AB5 and Dynamics that we have had access to unemployment over the years. But it's still, um, you know, sort of a uh, a labyrinth to get through um, and have the people who understand what's going on as misclassified workers to actually put us in the UI place. But that's that's what's going on. It's been extremely hard economically on people. You know, we've done even some food bank kind of activities for drivers. Um, we've definitely done PPE distribution. We've gotten donated masks and sanit hand sanitizer and, and helped get it out to drivers. It just 
you know, saves a few bucks and hopefully saves a few lives. Um, you know, but we've had drivers get sick from passengers exposing them to COVID. We've had a few drivers die and that's just devastating. Nobody should have to die um, for doing their job. And, you know, we stand in solidarity with many of the industries of essential workers who, um, you know, honestly, uh, they have not been in the kind of situation where they've been safe enough to stay, stay healthy and many have died. And that's just too sad. Under the uh, under the CARES Act, uh, the federal government did open up the possibility for gig workers to get some unemployment benefits, just um, mm-hmm. not in the same way as um, regular wage workers would get. I assume that that's what California drivers have been able to get at, at the very least, right? Yeah, the PUA is is awesome. It's been a a, a lifesaver. PUA is based on net wages as opposed to gross. And so some of the drivers who've been on PUA because they were, you know, honestly put in the wrong bucket uh, because they were misclassified employees, um, they have ended up with negative balances because once the uh, they do uh, the work on the side of the unemployment office, they realize they were paying you based on your gross, not your net, and you you end up you know looking like you owe money to the government. So that's the one thing that's much better about UI, especially for drivers, because our expenses are so high for the miles that we drive is that, you know, unemployment is based on gross. And so we are in a much better position overall if we're in unemployment insurance. The gig companies have already signaled that they plan to take Prop 22 on the road and try to get something similar implemented in other states. So do you have any sort of forewarnings for drivers in other states uh, when Prop 22 comes for them? Well, I think... um, yeah, they're they're coming for all of us and we have to stick together. And, you know, um, I think a lot of drivers would prefer to actually be independent contractors in terms of we have complete control over which jobs we take, we can set our own rates, et cetera, et cetera. Let's be real, folks. That's not what's happening when we drive. Um, and um, it's not what the companies want either. They are depend they very much depend on cutting our our wages uh, to the lowest they possibly can be because we're their bank account. You know, I did my taxes and I was making, you know, I you know, a third of the money um, that the passengers paid or more went to the company. And when I think of that is the money that Lyft earned, it's just infuriating, you know because it was so little that I earned in comparison to my expenses. But what I would say is, yeah, um, get ahead of the issue of flexibility and independence. What does independence mean? What does flexibility mean? Uh, You know, are you really flexible when you can't afford not to work on a Friday night or all weekend long when your kid needs you at a soccer game. You're not flexible to go visit your mom when she's sick in Michigan because um, you can't uh, leave you know, your job because you don't have enough money to pay the rent if you take just even three or four days off. Um, the flexibility that we have is something that's built into the app. It can continue. We saw in New York City, 
when they had when they raised the minimum uh, wage to twenty eight dollars an hour, that basically the company said we'd have to quit on your flexibility, and they haven't, right? So it's just you have to get over the issue of flexibility independence. That's what the companies are going to try to sell drivers on, and it has never been how they do the work. They want to um, get as much of that fare as they can um, and give you as little as possible. And the only way we can guarantee our wages and as the labor standards are raised in this country that we're on that boat. Um, and that is, you know, just really the bottom line. I mean, we, we, we look at the uh, workforces that have not been part of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, so these are domestic workers these are farm workers, how is their pay and has their minimum wage, you know, gone up as, you know, uh, the standards for employment have gone up? They have not. They have had to fight tooth and nail just to get there. We, like them, are a majority people of color immigrant workforce, and they're trying to keep us as second-class workers you have to get in front of the arguments of flexibility, in front of the arguments of independence, because we are workers like everybody else. We deserve protections like everybody else. And the last people who should be writing these laws are the industries that have lowered our wages by 50 to 75% over the past four or five years. You know they are not doing us a favor when they write these laws. And that was Nicole Moore of Rideshare Drivers United. We are also talking today to economist Marshall Steinbaum, assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah, formerly of the Roosevelt Institute and the Center for Equitable Growth. He's been thinking and writing a lot about the subject of Prop 22 and some of the not-so-good solutions being proposed to the problem of gig work. So, Marshall, you are here with me today because we got into a conversation on Twitter about the deal making that's been happening around gig economy workers, Proposition 22, and what all this has to do with the sudden interest in so-called sectoral bargaining. So to start out with, um, what does sectoral bargaining have to do with gig economy and why should we be worried? Uh, great question. So sectoral bargaining is this idea that... Uh, union representation need not take place at the firm level, um, that all of the workers in a given sector could be equally represented by a collective bargain or a, a, uh, a collective agreement, um, regardless of which firm they work for. Um, and that has a lot of attractiveness to those of us who care about workers and their welfare and their power on the job and in general. Um, because a big uh, threat to that power is the fact that there are union and non-union employers. And even when bargaining with a, like, quote unquote, good employer, a union employer, a that employer can say, oh, sure, I'd love to give you a raise or whatever, but that would make me uncompetitive in the sector relative to these other people who don't even bother with unions. So no, you can't get what you want. And right. uh, there's all sorts of race to the bottom type dynamics that arise where you, when you have some firms that are represented by a union and some firms that aren't. And the biggest race to the bottom dynamic is that that tends to create a situation in which no workers are represented by unions because there is a sort of chicken and egg problem. So 
sectoral bargaining is a system that has a lot of uh, successes in its in its past, uh, including in the United States, but especially now uh, in some European countries where there's very high coverage in collective bargaining agreements exactly because of collect- of sectoral bargaining. That is to say, workers in a given sector with a given uh, job description and a given career are represented by the collective bargain for that sector, regardless of, of which firm they work for. And it's a good system where it works well. The problem here is that because, so I think we could all agree with the starting point that, um, you know, workers in the United States need a lot more power than they currently have. Uh, workers in countries that have uh, successful sectoral bargaining systems have more power. So there's kind of the psychology of, okay, well, why don't we just do that here? And in particular, the race to the bottom dynamic is uh, quite prevalent in the U.S. labor market with our current system. Um, And we have, as I said, we have sectoral bargaining in some sectors, namely where union penetration tends to be high. Um, There's successful sectoral bargaining de facto in the United States, even if the sort of legal framework in which Uh, unions achieve recognition and uh, negotiate contracts is in an enterprise bargaining setup where you're bargaining about a particular work site or a particular firm. Um, So, you know, in the United States, we've got, uh, I mean, famously, the pattern bargaining of the UAW with the big three automakers back in the day was a version of sectoral bargaining, because it's basically saying that the bargain that the union struck with one company would apply sector wide to the three big companies that that operated in the sector. So it's sort of Floating out there is a good idea and has been for a while in labor circles. I would say where the danger arises in the current context is that it is being taken up in the context of the gig economy, where the, uh, the, the whole point of the gig economy is that it is the part of the labor market that is not regulated per our existing framework of labor regulations. And so if the employers themselves are saying, well, these people aren't working at any, any firm, they're not legally speaking, they're not employees of a firm then one of the things that means is that they don't have collective bargaining rights under the National Labor Relations Act, which is pre- that, that's the, the framework for uh, enterprise bargaining. So given that, maybe we should move to sectoral bargaining where collective bargaining rights are not dependent on being employed by the entity, the firm that uh, with which you're bargaining. Yeah. So in some of the things that you have written that you send me to look over before we talked about this, you note that the gig economy isn't a sector. It is, as you said, just kind of the part of the economy that doesn't have any worker protections. But on the other hand, when we're looking at sort of sectoral bargaining in these places, sort of Uber and Lyft are the rideshare sector, right? There's there's not a lot of competition. And we will get into the question of competition and antitrust a little bit later. But yeah, so I guess the question of thinking about sectoral bargaining with, say, Uber and Lyft, it can almost look like it bears some similarity, especially because I know SEIU, some people at SEIU have been in conversations with Uber and Lyft about this, to the to the way that SEIU and other unions have expanded unionization with, say, home health care workers by getting the state to be the employer of record for these workers who otherwise it would be really, really hard to organize. Um, so, yeah, I'm wondering, I guess, how you think bargaining with say Uber in that kind of way would be different than bargaining with like the state of California. Yeah, I think that's a great point and highlights exactly the sort of the reason why this issue of sectoral bargaining has arisen in the gig context, as well as why it won't work there, even if it bears some similarity to what uh, some unions like SEIU have achieved in the home health aid sector. Um, 
the premise of what you're just talking about is that you can essentially create responsibility through the political process. Um, and in that case, you, in the case of home health aides, you create that responsibility by, as you said, making the workers uh, employed by, uh, by some entity, in this case, the state. And then that's something that you can exercise some power over using politics, using action, you know, all, all of the levers that uh, uh, labor organizations have at their disposal. And they, I just don't think that model can kind of be grafted then onto the gig economy platforms in particular. So there's sort of the gig economy broadly, which is the set of the or the part of the labor uh, uh, market that's not regulated. Then, you know, we can talk about ride sharing where you've got the two companies you named Uber and Lyft are basically duopolists in that in that segment of the gig economy. Um, you know, under the pandemic, ride sharing has rel become relatively less important and home delivery of uh, groceries or food has become the kind of more growth sector in the gig economy. But it's basically the same idea. In, in the latter, we have had less of a shakeout so far. So rather than a duopoly, there's like a quintopoly or whatever it is, um, uh, at least nationally. I think some certain firms are dominant locally. Um, yeah. in that sector. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, the, the, where there's a lot to, where sectoral bargaining has a lot to offer, it's exactly where you have a fragmented sector. And so you, the, the workers can kind of achieve uh, a, a baseline or floor uh, from, to bargain from by um, eliminating this competition between union and non-union employers, because any one, you know, bringing any one employer in such a sector to the bargaining table doesn't get you that much in terms of labor standards for workers in the sector. But if you can bring them all to the table um, at once, then that's how you uh, that's how you can achieve something. You know, that benefit is not really at play where you have these dominant platforms um, that more or less dictate terms. Um, so. It's more, I mean, I think uh, Suresh Naidu, who's an econ professor at Columbia, had a good way of referring to this as that sectoral bargaining without uh, a real basis in worker power is basically an employer cartel because it is the, the mechanism by which these dominant platforms uh, would kind of solidify and legalize their business model as it currently exists, which is that they totally dictate terms and labor standards are terrible and workers have no say in them. Right. So, you know, if they can kind of shift the forum to one in which there's sort of a nominal consultation with a workers organization that doesn't have an independent power to extract concessions or to threaten a strike um, uh, or uh, otherwise, you know, make life difficult for the agency they're uh, 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 theoretically negotiating against, you know, it just seems more like this is kind of putting the imprimatur of at least a, a, a seemingly a, a labor organization on what the um, uh, platforms are already doing. Right. Right. That's one of the criticisms that's been leveled against the Independent Drivers Guild, which is affiliated with the Machinist Union and has been accused of basically being a company union because it was created with a sort of through a deal with the big companies. Yes. And the National Labor Relations Act has a ban on company unions. Uh, they're just illegal in the United States. And, uh, you know, it's important to maintain that. I mean, there's good reason why it is not in workers' interest. I mean, I think, I guess one thing to push back on, not that I necessarily think your listeners would, would suffer from this, this misimpression, but, um, you know, it's not like a company union is sort of like not quite as good as a real union, but at least it's something. It's like actively harmful to uh, workers' interests if they can uh, essentially be manipulated because, you know, they would be bound by whatever said union negotiated. Um, and so if that union doesn't really have any standing among workers, I mean, I would say that the, the uh, 
uh, kind of nightmare scenario here is that, you know, the companies get what they want through Prop 22. Let's say that gets kind of legitimized at the federal level, as well as in other states through the fig leaf of sectoral bargaining. And then the workers nominal representatives come to some sort of agreement that doesn't actually uh, respond to workers' grievances and, and demands on the job, you know, then the the situation that results from that is uh, workers being pissed off both at the company that's screwing them over as well as the union that's nominally representing them. And I think that's a situation that, um, you know, nobody who has workers' best interests in mind would, would want to do anything to bring about. And then they become just totally anti-union. And it's interesting because, you know, we're sort of talking about sectoral bargaining in a moment when labor is historically weak, although showing some signs of life in some sectors. And one of the, the you know, I, I will quote friend of the show, Jane McAlevey, to be like, you know, there, there are no shortcuts. And yet we sort of continue to be looking for them. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I would just I don't think, again, that our listeners are, are going to be confused by the, the idea that pro-worker legislation in this country has always come from a moment when workers were organizing and agitating and raising hell on the ground and pushed that through, not because some benevolent administration, you know, wrote a law. Yes. And I think that's important when to, if you look at sort of the sociology of who is on which side on sectoral bargaining right now and has been, uh, you know, kind of on what side with respect to California's Prop 22 and the law that it, you know, mostly uh, nullified uh, uh, AB5. Um, you know, there's def- there's a, a coalition of nonprofit organizations, as you referred to earlier, some unions, um, you know, law professors at fancy universities um, and, you know, people who are kind of, you know, on the progressive end of the spectrum, but not really workers themselves or representatives of workers agencies. I mean, with some exceptions, there are, there are some, as you said, and it it does give off the vibe, frankly, of a kind of um, elitist, you know, mindset where even if you're well-meaning, you know, you look at say a successful sectoral bargaining uh, uh, framework in in, uh, uh, Germany or France or Belgium or Sweden or something like that. And it's like, well, it works because it came out of a certain historical, uh, chain of events um, there and the labor system that we have here, such as it is, comes out of our own contingent history. Um, and it, it's just not in the nature of it that you can be like, OK, I mean, you know, we, there certainly is cross pollination in progressive policies uh, across national borders. I mean, like certain things about the way that our social security and unemployment insurance systems are set up are definitely owe something to um, uh, experiments that have been tried abroad first and that were brought over here. So it's not like that has no place in a kind of uh, policy uh, uh, generation context at all, but it's not by any stretch of the imagination, the only thing. And it worries me to see like a seemingly progressive uh, policy agenda kind of put forward by people in, uh, in fancy universities and uh, major philanthropies and, you know, nonprofit organizations that have like, very woke sounding mission statements that aren't democratically accountable to actual workers. Yeah. And not to mention that in a lot of these countries that have sectoral bargaining, they've been, their unions are also in decline. Yeah. And I would point out, it's kind of the same dynamic as here where, you know, the reason like the sectoral bargaining is successful, what employment classification means under us in a system that has functional sectoral bargaining is that you qualify for the sectoral bargain. 
So, for example, there was recently a labor court case in uh, a Swiss cantonal court where an Uber driver was ruled to be um, an employee of Uber. So that's you know different than mostly what's happened in the United States. Um, but the significance of that ruling for the driver and for all Uber drivers in Switzerland is that that means that he's he he qualifies for the sectoral bargain for taxi drivers in the Swiss labor market. Um, so where in other countries like Germany being the big one where they've kind of hollowed out their own system, at least for, for many workers, um, it's exactly because they have uh, eroded uh, entitlement to employment status and created a, what in this country has been called a third category or an independent worker mm-hmm. classification, um, you know, where it's like, okay, well, we have a, basically a, a two-tier uh uh, structure for uh, labor standards for workers doing the same job. And that's like poison to uh, any kind of real um, uh, collective bargaining and, and uh, worker solidarity. Right. Yeah. So we heard Nicole earlier on the show talking about the the problem with these third category agreements. But I wonder if if talking about American history in our particular context, um, can you talk about the, the history of uh, categories of workers being carved out of labor law? Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, to get to the sort of cynicism of the, um, uh, you know, pro-sectoral bargaining side here, pro-independent worker third category thing, um, you know, they foreground the fact that many occupations and especially occupations that were dominated by uh, workers of color and by women were excluded from the National Labor Relations Act, from the Fair Labor Standards Act in the late New Deal. So this is sort of the most progressive uh, labor policy that the federal government has ever adopted, uh, speaking of these sort of moments of uh, mass worker action giving rise to policy uh, reform and, uh, to their benefit. Um, you know, this this is sort of the most uh, radical moment in this particular context at the federal level. And look, we left out the occupations that employ uh, people from uh, historically marginalized backgrounds. And so the people who are pushing this third category idea with a sectoral bargain, or I should say with the sectoral bargaining now, are pointing to that and saying, look, we can now rectify the fact that uh, these types of service occupations and uh, quote unquote informal or casual uh, work arrangements, you know, those workers in those categories have been excluded from labor protections. Let's rectify that by um, entitling them to union representation through sectoral bargaining. And I just think that's supremely cynical because it is reenacting that exact exclusion if what goes with sectoral bargaining is third category, namely carving them out of uh, labor standards and protections for uh, bona fide workers. And that's always happened on the basis of determining that workers in certain job classifications or who work in certain places doing certain job descriptions, those aren't real workers that there's some, and therefore, since they're not real workers, they're not entitled to benefits as workers or labor standards. Um, and we just see that all over the place now. I mean, even before the kind of current moment, I you know come out of uh, labor economics the minimum wage and its effects have you know, been a, a subject of much research in that field. Um, and, you know, you see this sort of rhetoric of like p- workers who are minimum wage are teenagers living with their parents. So, you know, they don't need that, you know, they're not actually uh, subsisting on their pay from a minimum wage job. Um, and so therefore it's not, uh, you know, re- they're not really entitled to the protection of a minimum wage. Um, and that, writ large, and in particular, their workers not being entitled to uh, representation by a union um, is exactly what 
this type of uh, uh, like quote unquote compromise is looking to to prolong. So on the one hand, you've got all these nonprofits being like, oh, you know, now we've learned the lesson of the New Deal when we excluded the historically marginalized. Oh, but by the way, we should do exactly that again now for the next 80 years. Right. Domestic workers, the original gig workers. So how does antitrust come into this? And sort of it comes into it, I guess, in a couple of directions. Yeah. So since, I mean, as I said, I've been a labor economist for my whole career. Antitrust is relatively late uh, enthusiasm of mine, but it definitely arises from uh, noting the uh, exploitation and totally uh, uh, unacceptable business models that prevail in the gig economy. So antitrust basically governs the exercise of power across the boundaries of the firm, across the borders of the firm. So well, all the other, everything else we've been talking about in this conversation, like uh, collective bargaining rights and Fair Labor Standards Act, so minimum wage and maximum hours and the other uh, regulations that apply to the way that employers treat their employees, um, those all govern what the law conceptualizes as within firm balance of power. So it basically takes as given that uh, employers can tell their workers what to do, um, that the employment relationship is an inherently one of subservience and domination, and then says, well, in exchange for being able to dominate someone as your worker, as your employee, and tell them what to do, you have to give them these protections. Antitrust doesn't have that uh, kind of innate recognition of who, uh, of parties to some sort of agreement naturally, you might say, being in a relationship of dominance and subservience, but it does try to prevent that dominance from basically being too excessive, if I could put it that way. So when we're talking about this misclassification or, or just independent contractor classification, whether it's not whether it's misclassified or a, a bona fide um, independent contractor, you know, the, the set of laws that governs the relationship between whoever is contracting that person and the person themselves, that is antitrust. That is, you push them out of the out of the sphere of labor law through this classification as an independent contractor. And then what would apply, if anything applies, uh, in terms of how much power you can exercise is antitrust. And the fact is, antitrust basically doesn't do anything anymore, especially in that in that situation. So so the the, the gig economy arises out of a uh, a, a context, a policy context in which uh, if you can manage to push people, workers out of the legal boundary of the firm, then you can do whatever you want to them because they're, you're, they're not, they don't fall under uh, labor regulations or a collective bargaining agreement. And once you're across the border of the firm, antitrust has in effect nothing to say about whether what you're doing is legal or not. So my view is what you want to do, what you know, the, the worker-friendly reform here um, is to reestablish the sharp line that distinguishes uh, the people whom you can tell what to do and the people whom you cannot tell what to do. The people whom you can tell what to do are your workers, they're le- your legal employees, and they have recourse. They are rep- they can be represented by a union. They you're obligated to provide certain standards to them. And in return for providing those, you can tell them what to do, economically speaking. Or if you're outside that boundary, you don't have obligate you, the dominant firm or employer, don't have obligations to them, but you're also much more limited in what you can force them to do. And the gig economy really represents the kind of have your cake and eat it to uh, uh, reality of where we are with labor and antitrust. Um, and I think, you know, there's an important kind of theoretical principle at work here, which is 
the, the gig companies want to claim that with labor standards comes a, a diminution of workers' flexibility. So they'll always come out and say, the workers want flexibility. They want to be able to work whenever they want. And, and uh, you know, they don't want us looking over their shoulder. Um, so that's why we can't provide labor standards. Now, the reality is that these two uh, uh, propositions, uh, uh, flexibility, or I prefer to use the term autonomy on the part of workers, because that's really what they want, not, not flexibility. Um, these are not substitutes in economic terms. It's like, okay, well, if we have more labor standards, if the floor is higher, um, then uh, you automatically lose uh, autonomy because in this conception, for example, your schedule can be determined by uh, management as opposed to by workers. Um, that's it's just not true that those things are substitutes. In reality, they're complements uh, to take the opposite. So the more autonomy workers have, um, the more ability they have to do what they want, uh, the b- better labor standards they can demand from their responsible party, from their counterparty. And that is you know, very starkly contrasting with the agitprop coming from uh, the proponents of the gig economy. Right, right. So there's also something else about antitrust, which is right, that like the argument is that if you are actually an independent contractor, then you are banned from getting together with other independent contractors to fix prices because that itself is subject to antitrust law. Yeah, yeah. So this is the kind of contrast between vertical and har- vert- vertical control versus horizontal coordination, right. um, to use the terminology my, my colleague Cedric DePaul uh, has kind of popularized, I think, for very good reason. Um, so under antitrust, like two gas stations getting together, you know, say they're across the street from each other and, you know, they get together like, well, how about we don't reduce prices to try to get uh, business away from each other? Let's instead agree to have a high price. That's like flagrantly illegal under the antitrust laws. Um, and what isn't illegal is this vertical control I was referring to previously, which is the dominant uh, uh, oil refiner telling the price, what price the individual gas stations can charge to uh, to each one. So that that contrast of like very uh, severe liability for horizontal coordination, no liability for vertical control, that is the thing that needs to be reversed. So in the context of uh, labor, Basically, horizontal coordination is what labor unions engage in and what workers' organizations, at least ideally, um, engage in. And there was a time in which those exact things were determined to be violations of the Sherman Act of the antitrust law. So uh, 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 Supreme Court case Lowe v. Lawler is about uh, Sherman Act liability for secondary boycott. Um, you know, even now, now so so that was a huge grievance of uh, of labor unions in the early 20th century is that this law that was supposed to go against monopolies was actually being used to destroy unions, to union bus. Right. Um, that wasn't fully gotten rid of, really, even though the Clayton Act, in response to uh, Lovie Lawler, the Clayton Act has this so-called labor exemption that says that the uh, labor is not an article of commerce that's designed to uh, prevent uh, antitrust liability for uh, labor, organi- labor union organizing. That didn't actually you know, kind of fully take shape in terms of uh, being uh, legally enforceable until the NARS LaGuardia Act of 1932. And that gives rise to what in antitrust is called the labor exemption, which basically says labor unions and the collective bargaining agreements that they reach are not violations of the antitrust laws. Um, What has happened in the era of the gig economy and uh, rampant misclassification is that by pushing workers out of the legal category of employment, they put push them into a 
legal category in which they face potential antitrust liability. And so we saw this in uh, Seattle, where the city council attempted to create a union to represent ride-sharing drivers. Uh, you can see that, in fact, as, as a sort of attempt at sectoral bargaining, but I think a better one than what's being contemplated, what we've talked about so far in this conversation, because it would, it would have been uh, uh, meaningfully independent of the platforms themselves. You could tell that because the platforms went to war against that idea uh, using, <laughs> using antitrust and succeeded, more or less. Um, that is, they got the Seattle City Council by bringing it into federal court uh, and claiming a violation of the Sherman Act, got them to radically modify the terms of this such that there is no collective bargaining agency anymore. First, they took wages out of the set of things it was allowed to bargain about. So, okay, what's the point of having a, a collective bargaining agreement if it's not allowed to talk about wages? That's kind of the thing you'd care most about. And then even that wasn't enough to satisfy the the sort of evil antitrust god, in this case, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and uh, and so they just sort of scrapped it and moved to a more New York City-like uh, system for collective bargaining where there's more regulated rates, but no uh, no collective bargaining, no representation for workers in that process, no formal representation. Um, so, uh, so that's all to say we're kind of back in the era of Lowe v. Lawler in which uh, if uh, workers uh, strike attempt a secondary boycott or do any of the many, I mean, I guess secondary boycotts became illegal as part of the sort of settlement to uh, that, that created the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act. But, you know, all of the, the weapons that uh, workers have collectively to bring to bear in a negotiation uh, are kind of taken off the table if the workers are themselves potentially liable under the Sherman Act. Meanwhile, all the things that employers have or de facto employers have to force workers to do what they want, those things are not, uh, uh, they, they don't face antitrust liability. All right. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, we have a new administration in as of this week. Um, Joe Biden's actually in the White House. Um, so what can we expect slash ask for from a new administration on this front? Yeah. I mean, I think this is exactly where the kind of uh, uh, sharpest uh, disagreements and, and most important um, uh, advocacy and, and actions are to be done in the in the very near future. There are people in the Biden world who are pushing for a essentially federalization of Prop 22, where the fig leaf that would allow it is the sectoral bargaining. I mean, even the CEOs of Uber and Lyft have said that since Prop 22 actually passed. And I can tell you that given their activities in the last couple of years of trying to push some sort of compromise on sectoral bargaining and employment classification, you know, they're going to be very active. Now, I, I should say I'm sort of cautiously optimistic about the way that the department, so, so the relevant agency in this case is the Federal Department of Labor, because they're the ones who determine um, eligibility for the under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So. Mm-hmm. On the what so so there's a couple of different sort of irons in the fire here. We have the Pro Act, which is proposed legislation that passed the la- that con- passed the House of Representatives in the last Congress. That is the official like policy program of the Democratic Party and the Joe Biden campaign. Um, it's good. It's a it's a good law, and it legislates the federal ABC test, which is the one that's you know was overturned by Prop 22. That makes it much more likely that gig workers are classified as employees. So if that passed, that would basically overturn Prop 22 at a stroke. Um, And uh, and that's great. You know, this fate for that law in this Congress, even with a Democratic majority in both houses, is probably not great. Hopefully I'm wrong about that. But 
it sort of has the flavor of the Employee Free Choice Act that, that, that it did in the 2000s, which is you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the union's ask that gets passed when there's no chance of it being signed into law and then suddenly can't be passed when right. it becomes the case that the administration would have to sign it into law. Um, Some of so, us have EFCA freaking PTSD. <laughs> yes, well, well, unfortunately, you know, get ready for that to happen again. So there's a couple of yeah. other, you know, up until now and probably still now, there has not been uh, sufficient uh, congressional support to legislate any um, changes to the standard for employment classification under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, so what we have is case law and agency opinions on that. And the case law is basically from the 40s when the Supreme Court entertained the definition of employment under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So since the case law is from the 40s, there's a lot of discretion that rests with the Federal Department of Labor and its uh, wages and hours division. That is the division that enforces the Fair Labor Standards Act. So under the Obama administration, we had very good opinions from uh, Professor David Weil, who is then the uh, administrator of the wages and hours division, basically that would have made gig workers uh, uh, employees. Right. So the sort of obvious thing to do short of passing the PRO Act is to essentially reenact uh, those opinions from the Obama administration and, and you know, the Trump administration, DOL, rescinded them. And then it just literally the last day in office or the second to last day uh, passed a rule. So that's a you know, slightly heavier administrative lift than these uh, administrator opinions in that a rule is legally enforceable unless it's counteracted. So one thing I hope definitely happens is that the Congressional Review Act is used within the first however many days, I think 60 legislative days of the Congress to overturn the rule that the the Trump people just adhere to, because that's the easiest way of overturning that rule. Otherwise, you have to write another rule that overturns it. Um, So I hope that kind of goes without saying. Then we're back to legally the same ground that we were at under the Obama administration, where a new administrator of the Wages and Hours Division would implement or, or issue new a new agency opinion that does not have the force of law by itself. Now, it's quite possible that a Biden DOL will pass its own rule. So not only will it overturn the Trump one, but it will pass another one that's better, at least, than uh, the one that prevailed under Trump. And that hopefully would not federally enact Prop 22 in effect. But there are people, I mean, I guess, the, 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 you know, there are people there who want a settlement. Like they view this sort of going back and forth between the definitions of employment um, you know, like even even under the good times, they've not been able to make it stick against the platforms. Um, and now we have, with Prop 22, it seems like that's less likely than ever. Um, right. So, you know, there's definitely a contingent there, which has people who have the employment history with the platforms themselves or, or <clears> have <throat> represented them. Um, the vice or, president, in fact, has some yeah. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. So that what they would want to do is kind of is, is come up with a quote compromise that includes some version of this sectoral bargaining. Um, and you can see this. I mean, I think I saw this quote from the CEO of Lyft just the other day that was like, we yeah. look forward to shortly releasing our proposal with our labor friends to solve this problem once and for all. Yeah. So that's going to be a sectoral bargaining proposal that's agreed to and proposed by SEIU, at, at least at the international level, the, the sort of Washington lobbying level. Um, yeah you know, that is the other way this could go or another way it could go. And I think, you know, obviously that's kind of the nightmare scenario, uh, I think, for workers and for uh, uh, people who have their best interests in mind. That was Marshall Steinbaum, and you can find him on Twitter at econ underscore Marshall. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. The piece I chose this week had me from the title, Coronavirus is an Occupational Disease that Spreads at Work, by Justin Feldman at Jacobin. Last episode, you heard me speaking to teacher James Kerr from the UK about the denial that COVID spreads in schools, but of course, that's just part of a bigger denial that is much broader than just schools. Over and over again in the UK and the US, we've heard officials claim that the problem is that people are disobeying rules to have big house parties or something, while ignoring the fact that businesses are open, commerce is taking place, interactions are happening, and people are getting sick. Quote, the risk is particularly high, according to these political leaders, when the meetings do not happen in spaces that generate profit or serve important institutional functions, Feldman writes. Quote, blaming social gatherings is politically convenient. It requires no restrictions on the power of business owners. In contrast, acknowledging that the coronavirus is an occupational disease highlights the need for public health interventions that are expensive to those in power. End quote. This piece contains more than just, you know, outrage and and hot takes. Feldman notes, quote, Business interests have shaped explanations of disease transmission throughout the history of capitalism. The medieval practice of quarantine fell out of favor among European powers in the first half of the 19th century. England and Holland loosened their quarantine laws in 1825, France in 1828, and Austria in 1841. Prominent physicians argued that restricting travel and detaining ships did little to control cholera, yellow fever, and the other epidemics that plagued Europe. In heated public debates, these scientists contended that most diseases did not spread through contagion, inanimate poisons transmitted via close contact with an ill traveler, but rather through miasma, the noxious airs emanating from urban slums' filth. According to noted anti-contagionists like Edwin Chadwick, author of England's notorious poor laws, it was sanitation, not quarantine, that would keep disease away. End quote. Because quarantine, of course, cost money. But miasma, whatever the hell that's really supposed to be, that could just be blamed on the poor themselves, as they were over and over again those who suffered and continue to suffer the most from contagious disease. Science, of course, has changed since that time. Um, We no longer talk about miasma, thank goodness. But we still don't have great data on how most people have gotten coronavirus in America, Feldman points out. Quote, mapping the dynamics of viral spread requires the sort of strong public health infrastructure that does not exist in the United States. Even countries that have invested more resources into disease surveillance cannot keep up when infection is widespread, as there are too many potential sources of infection. Perhaps most importantly, properly investigating the question of where the coronavirus spreads also requires those in power to want to know the answer. End quote. But if they actually trace it, then how would they blame their constituents? Of course, our buddy Andrew Cuomo is one of the loudest voices blaming his own people. But despite the lack of good data, there's plenty of evidence that Cuomo and the rest of them are wrong. Feldman again. The research on workplace exposure paints a picture of the coronavirus as a concerning occupational illness that contributes substantially to community spread. A study of a large grocery store in the Boston area found that employees with customer-facing jobs were about five times more likely to have coronavirus antibodies than workers in other roles. Additional studies have attributed high rates of infection to workplace exposures in agriculture and construction. 
In a survey of service workers, 41% responded that they were not able to consistently maintain physical distance from others on the job. Workplace exposure also offers a compelling explanation for much of the racial inequality that has characterized the pandemic. Black, Latino, and Indigenous people are not only more likely to die of coronavirus than white people, but all evidence indicates they are also more likely to be exposed and infected. People of color make up a large share of essential workers in high-risk industries and are more often linked to workplace transmission than white employees. Mobility data from cell phones shows that during the pandemic, the only difference in travel patterns between residents of wealthy neighborhoods, who tend to be white, and residents of low-income neighborhoods, where many people of color live, is that residents of low-income neighborhoods spend a lot more time at work. End quote. So how do we fix it? You guessed it. Quote, while avoiding social gatherings is largely a question of personal choice, avoiding workplace exposure requires a shift in the balance of economic power, end quote. This is, of course, the second place where I'm going to note that I lied in the introduction because this is where a new administration comes in, not just in admitting publicly that the virus spreads at work, which I don't really have hopes for, but maybe in staffing up OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And then there is vaccination. Putting frontline workers at the front of the line for the vaccine would be another big step. But most important of all would be something that you know I like to talk about. Pay people to stay home as much as is possible. We will, of course, see what comes of all of this. Meanwhile, take care out there. My pick for ARG this week is actually an interview in Jacobin. It's called Musicians Need to Organize Collectively as Workers. It's with Josephine Shetty of the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, conducted by Alexander Billette. The world of recorded music has never been more accessible to a global audience, with digital communication enabling listeners to acquire new music at virtually no cost, while also allowing artists to create, collaborate, share, and reach new audiences virtually without limit. But while music as a product may be growing more accessible, it's definitely not becoming more democratic. Having limitless amounts of music available to us online has not overcome the hard realities of capitalism in the music market. A new union wants to change that. Josephine Shetty, co-founder of the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, or UMAW, explains that the union's new campaign to make Spotify treat and compensate musicians more fairly for their work on streaming is one step towards creating a more ethical infrastructure for music production and marketing. While the music world is seen as a competition for the best talent or the most influential artist, Shetty points out that, thanks to the oligarchy of large record companies and now the monopolistic power of streaming services like Spotify, what looks to be a meritocracy is actually deeply rigged. She says, quote, it's a myth of individualism. UMAW has a different vision of how we gain success for everybody. I think for the full community of music workers to be truly successful, we need to organize together so we can create sustainable solidarity economies where all of us have our needs met and all of us are able to make our art. We want to do work without being exploited or feeling this pressure of the narrative that we rise to the top by pushing other people down and ourselves to our limits, unquote. Instead of fighting for crumbs that Spotify tosses out, such as the spotlight they give to certain artists, musicians, the UMAW argues, should be fighting the payment structure that makes it impossible for artists or many of the technicians and other workers that make their careers possible to earn a living wage. 
But Chetty also explains that recording artists are unique workers in the sense that most do not make a living off of their recorded work alone, especially now that Spotify reimburses artists just fractions of a penny per stream and the consumption of actual physical recordings has been completely sidelined in the industry. Shetty herself relies on teaching and performing for much of her income. And during the pandemic, with live performance venues all but dead, many artists like her have struggled to cobble together a living from whatever work they can find. And that makes the income coming from streaming all the more vital. There have been high-profile clashes between big pop stars and the major streaming platforms, but for ordinary working musicians, the struggles have played out quietly with little fanfare. Musicians are famous for struggling all the time, of course, so much so that the starving artist has become a cliché, but during the pandemic, the loss of live events and the economic recession, more broadly, have devastated many other types of music workers who are involved in the marketing, ticket sales, etc. The UMAW is trying to organize across professional lines in the music business to consolidate workers' power up and down the creative production chain. They need to unite in order to defeat the corporations that lord over all of their livelihoods. Shetty explains, quote, in terms of not only the big three record labels, but in general, industry bosses have managed to continually increase their profits as the industry has evolved. A lot of these shifts in the industry are marketed as democratizing, yet somehow all of these industry bosses are accruing wealth exponentially year after year, unquote. And much of that wealth, of course, come the expense of artists. In addition to pressuring Spotify to pay more fairly, part of UMAW's mission is to champion worker-owned alternatives to conventional distribution methods, including two outlets, Ampled and Resonate, which operate as independent worker-led platforms that provide streaming music in a model that prioritizes equity for artists. Nonetheless, Shetty adds, quote, our campaign is definitely not meant to decry streaming as a bad model for listening. The popular model for listening is great, but we need to make it work for users and workers, unquote. UMAW envisions a future of music in which the creation and enjoyment of the art is not just an industry or a market, but a community. The union also wants to broaden the definition of what an entertainment industry union can do by broaching political issues that thread through every aspect of music production and performance. Much of that has to do with the union's origin story. It grew out of a protest at the music festival South by Southwest against collaboration between the administrators of the festival and immigration authorities. Many of the artists involved with that campaign went on to form the No Music for Ice Coalition, which tries to get artists to cut ties with companies involved with immigration enforcement, such as Amazon Web Services. The mobilization in defense of immigrants eventually became a flashpoint for a new kind of organizing among artists, musicians, as part of a global community, so that they could leverage their collective power to affect change within the industry, and they could also change how the music world interfaces with society as a whole. As Shetty notes, quote, so many artists make these individual decisions. They don't like Amazon, so they decide to pull their music. Why not make it a collective action? Yeah, why not? Music is often seen as an escape from reality, but in fact, it's a reflection of our reality and a part of it. The politics of music has not always been harmonious, but we have the power to make it resonate with our deepest aspirations for a better world. And that's it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks, as always, to Colin and Natasha for making us sound good. Don't forget to go to our Patreon to support our work with monthly donations, and you will also get a cool free Belabored gift. We also want you to get in touch with us directly with any questions or comments or ideas for shows. We want to hear from you if you're a working musician struggling to make ends meet. And we definitely want to hear from you if you are a gig worker disillusioned with Prop 22 and trying to make sure that that model of labor deregulation doesn't spread across the country. And if you have been one of the workers or strike supporters down at the picket line at Hunts Point Market, we definitely want to hear from you too. Get in touch with us on Twitter at hashtag belabored, or you can reach us by email at belabored 
at dissentmagazine.org. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.